Okay, hello everyone. This is Dr. Leslie Kernison of Better Health While Aging, and this is another coronavirus special for the website and for the podcast um, because things are changing very quickly. I actually prepared an update for the Helping Older Parents members call that took place yesterday. I do those twice a month, but um, because first of all, <laughs> things have changed since uh, yesterday. Um, I decided to just update the slides I shared with that group and record something um, updated for the podcast and to share with the bigger, better health while aging community. Um, so, but this is, uh, a lot of it is based on the questions that I have been getting in the membership and that I'm hearing from people. So, uh, so what I'm going to do is um, sort of a brief update on the situation today, but I wanted to share some of the things that I have learned about the clinical course of coronavirus. I've put COVID in the slides, it takes less space. And then I have some thoughts on, um, you know, the latest right now, if you think you or your older parent has it, what to know about um, starting the care at home, which is what most people are being told to do right now. Uh, what we've learned about hospital care for coronavirus this past week, a few thoughts about palliative care, um, if that's an option that you might be considering for yourself or a family member, and I'm going to close with some thoughts on planning ahead and considerations for frail older adults. So uh, I am recording this on Friday, March 27th uh, in the afternoon Pacific. and. So in the past week, we in the United States have gone from 15,000 to uh, now it seems it's, we're over 100,000 cases um, today. We are now the country in the world that has the most cases, and the death toll seems to be at about 1,500. Um, hospitals in New York City, New York City has turned into a very significant hot spot, and hospitals in New York City are... Um, reporting that they're overwhelmed and they're basically going into, you know, a crisis mode of sorts where they're really feeling some limitations related to manpower, personal protective equipment and more. We also have emerging hotspots in New Orleans and in parts of the Midwest. Um, economically, the big news is that the Congress and the President just passed a, a stimulus bill, but still we uh, in practical terms, um, almost all parts of the country are reporting shortages of tests for coronavirus, shortages of masks, shortages of other forms of personal protective equipment, face shields, gowns, um, and the equipment that health providers uh, need to, um, to reduce the risk of, of catching it from people they're caring for. And these are also, you know, some of this is equipment that ideally people would have at home if they were taking care of a family member who was sick with coronavirus. So we remain really limited. Uh, many parts of the United States, but still not quite all, are enforcing social and physical distancing, and most residential facilities for older adults have limited or banned visitors. So let me share what I um, you know, found uh, interesting and notable that I learned um, over the past week. So as you know, this is, you know, this is all evolving quickly, so we don't have our normal routes 
for learning about a medical condition as physicians. We have to kind of follow along the news and the medical news, um, and they're not the rigorous peer-reviewed studies that we wish we had. But as far as I can tell, the clinical spectrum, as was previously described, that still stands. It seems that many people, the exact percentage is debated, you know, whether it's like 20%, 25%, or even 50% of people are having no symptoms or very mild symptoms, and so may not even realize they have coronavirus. But, um, but then I, um, overall, the thought is still that 80% of people uh, have no symptoms or mild symptoms, um, and mild can range from anything from I feel a little blah to feeling like you have the flu at home and being miserable for a few days. And then there are 15 to 20% who are having more severe cases, and I'm going to talk about what that, you know, what we've learned that looks like, and about 5% requiring critical care. So when we look at who is getting more sick, who is getting hospitalized, who ends up, um, you know, going into respiratory and requiring critical care, older adults are definitely overrepresented. So older adults, older adults excuse me, often... Uh, represent half or more of those groups. That said, it's really important to realize that uh, even though many of those with severe illness are older, overall, most coronavirus infections in older adults are probably still mild and, you know, most are not requiring hospitalization. That is how, you know, a week ago I said that the data out of Italy was that, um, you know, 78% of people over age 90 seem to have survived. Now, of course, you have to follow them long enough to be be sure about that. Now, I, I didn't get to see the details on that data. It's probably not, you know, 78% of 90-year-olds who are hospitalized for coronavirus. You know, that would be of people who had positive tests, as I'm guessing. So, um, so yes, this is, this is sobering, and being older or having chronic illnesses certainly puts one at risk. And um, it's important to not panic because, um, you know, there are older adults who uh, have been diagnosed um, as positive and are not ending up in the hospital. So we should all be, uh, first of all, washing our hands and staying away from others and doing what we can to reduce our own risk and also not panicking too much and hoping that if we catch it, we will be among um, the lucky majority who don't have a very severe course. In terms of initial symptoms, how do you know if you have it? Um, you know, the classic is, uh, you know, people who do develop symptoms, often it's upper respiratory, cough, maybe um, fever, um, sometimes fluey feelings like body aches. Um, but we also have known for a while, somebody was just asking me about it in the membership, that some people have more like gastrointestinal symptoms, some nausea. I think vomiting itself is not that common, but diarrhea um, does happen. And some people might have fatigue. So I was asked in the membership, you know, how do we monitor our older parents for, you know, if for signs like that and know whether it's coronavirus. And, you know, my answer would be that first of all, especially as people get older and frailer, a general principle in geriatrics is that frail older people often manifest serious illness with what we would call very nonspecific symptoms like fatigue and being blah. And that is why a few years ago, I actually did uh, an article 
I definitely did a podcast episode, I think also an article on how the influenza, that was a, a few years ago, we had a very bad influenza season in the United States, how influenza was getting missed in older adults because they didn't have the typical influenza um, uh, symptoms. So, you know, I mean, if a frail older person is much weaker than usual or gets confused, you know, that could be coronavirus, that could be influenza, that could be a, um, you know, another type of infection or illness. That's just the nature of, uh, of geriatrics. Um, so I would think less about looking for very specific symptoms and more being kind of attuned to, does this person seem unwell? And right now I think it's important to consider the possibility that, you know, well, it, it could be coronavirus. Um, and, um, and one thing they have noticed in terms of the initial presentations, um, so it is right now hard to get a test. That's the frustration for so many people in the general public and for so many health providers is that we would like to be able to tell people. I mean, if nothing else, it would help a family to know how important is it to uh, isolate that family member who has coronavirus and become really diligent about disinfecting surfaces inside the house because right now most of us are not making a particular effort to um, avoid um, contact with our household members, right? We're trying to avoid contact with people outside our households. So it's definitely a really practical, relevant question. And for now, it's still very hard to get a test. But, um, but one thing that, um, that has emerged from coronavirus cases is that often people with coronavirus have white blood cell counts that are not particularly high. Because with many other illnesses, you know, like a bad urinary tract infection um, or others, the white blood cell count does get high. But actually in coronavirus, um, it uh, is often sort of um, relatively normal given that the person is ill. Now that can happen with influenza too. So if you're you know, wondering if someone has coronavirus, if possible, in many places it's recommended to try to get an influenza test to rule that out. Um, so also, you know, what I've been learning is, uh, we, we kind of already knew this, but it's been con uh, confirmed. The most common worrisome symptom is to get a significant pneumonia. Now what they found in China is that when they would scan people who had tested positive, regardless of whether they were having symptoms, there were people with um, uh, mild symptoms or sometimes no symptoms who actually did have signs of pneumonia um, in their lungs on CAT scans, but it wasn't creating clinical symptoms. Um, so what we really want to think about is, you know, is it a significant pneumonia, which is generally going to manifest with shortness of breath and also with low oxygen levels. So um, I don't want to create a run on Amazon or anything, but if, uh, if you happen to have one of those little finger oxygen um, checks, that, you know, could be something helpful at home if you're wondering, is this getting serious and really worrisome? Um, a friend forwarded to me something from uh, one of the hospitals that, um, you know, report from a doctor in one of the hospitals that is seeing a lot of coronavirus. And uh, they described what I've seen, you know, in other reports that often the more significant shortness of breath and low oxygen comes on five to eight days after the start of symptoms. And then symptoms tend to start two to 11 days after exposure. And so once people start having um, low oxygen levels and shortness of breath, 
um, they can quite quickly progress to uh, frank, you know, what we call respiratory failure when the lungs really become unable to keep up with the job of providing oxygen to the body, uh, often because they are filling with inflammation and with fluid. And so then that is something that a little extra oxygen is generally not enough um, to handle and people require intubation, the tube in the throat and ventilator support. Um, what we also know from uh, you know, the case studies in the United States and the reports in China is that those people who end up on ventilators are not getting off the ventilator quickly and they are very, very sick. So they are often on the ventilator for um, a week or two and many of them uh, do die. Uh, so depending on you know, where I see the statistic, I have seen mortality rates of 60 to 80% and being older or frailer or having other chronic health conditions um, increases the chance of mortality. So the, the ones who are most likely to improve and get off the ventilator tend to be people who are younger and healthier. So again, you know, overall, most people are, who catch coronavirus are going to have you know, a, a form of mild um, illness, um, but um, the minority who get the pneumonia uh, can end up very sick, and the ventilator is not a short-term, um, is not a quick solution. Uh, people, people are staying on for a long time. So that creates an issue in terms of you know, surge capacity for hospitals, right? Because it's not just can we put the person on a ventilator for three days and you know, get fluid out of their lungs and then send them back to the hospital floor. They, you know, they really are likely to be there um, for, uh, f for over a week, probably even like two weeks or more. So another thing that has come out, and I did hear about this a few weeks ago, and now a study in uh, JAMA Cardiology is confirming it. Um, they are finding that COVID does also cause cardiac symptoms, a cardiomyopathy, um, a kind of inflammation of the heart muscle, um, and some other cardiac symptoms in certain people. Not in most of them, but it's not super uncommon, and they are seeing um, patients come in with that too. It can also come up as people are also already struggling with the pneumonia. So based on what we've learned over the last week and before that, you know, uh, I thought I would share my latest recommendations that I'd shared with the membership about if you think you might have coronavirus or your aging parent or someone else that you are close to. So right now, um, the deal is that you're generally supposed to call your doctor or public health hotline. They do not want people going to emergency rooms and clinics because that crowds the emergency room and clinic that creates a whole transmission infection zone in these health um, providing spaces and it overloads um, providers. Now in some states they have drive-through clinics but those are generally not available for the general public. In most uh, places they're trying to keep them for what they've considered you know, high priority people for testing which you know, are often health providers and first responders. So today, I would say that if you're worried you might have coronavirus and you may well have symptoms, uh, it's quite possible that you won't be able to get a test. Um, it can be good to be tested for flu if possible. And as I mentioned, the coronavirus, you know, if you end up getting um, blood work done, 
it often has lower than expected white blood cell count. But you know, the question with this too is, you know, how will the test results change things? Um, and to me, the, the main way that they change things is really in terms of what you know about the risk to your family and whoever's in your house or whoever is going to be helping you while ill. So right now what many people are being told if they have coronavirus symptoms, whether or not they have a positive test, is to basically self-treat and self-quarantine uh, at home. And you know that is not necessarily going to be easy for people, especially if they're quite symptomatic or sick. There have been some very you know heartbreaking stories in the paper. I mean, again, many people are having a mild course, but some people are having a more significant one. Hopefully, your usual health provider will be able to provide you with virtual telemedicine visits to check on you and help you determine whether you are getting um, sick enough that you actually should come to the hospital. I think that's the general goal. Medicare has um, changed regulations related to telemedicine um, just in the last few weeks to allow all providers to bill the same amount for telemedicine visits as for face-to-face, -face. so they're trying to kind of encourage those both to make it more accessible to people and to discourage the in-person visits, which right now you know, are creating risk for patients and for providers. I have had um, members of uh, the Helping Older Parents program tell me that they're having difficulty getting telemedicine from their usual providers. It's true that even if Medicare changes the rules, providers still have to internally equip themselves to do it and some I think are getting on that faster than others. Um, but, uh, you know, ask for it and encourage them to do it. They, you know, ideally will be doing it and hopefully that'll be accessible to most people who need it. So what about hospitalization? Um, so um, I have been thinking about hospitalization just because in my line of work for frail older adults, often as part of advanced planning, we talk about under what conditions would the older person want to be hospitalized? And does it make sense, quote unquote, to consider hospitalization? We have those conversations as geriatricians because in general, we know that hospitalization is relatively, is somewhat perilous for older adults. The older you get, the more at risk you are for a variety of hospital complications. So we like to you know, just pose the question to ourselves, to our patients, to families, you know, is, is this hospitalization likely to be beneficial? Are the likely benefits, do those outweigh the likely risks? So that's you know, a routine part of our work as geriatricians. So you know, coronavirus brings up some special considerations regarding hospitalization and the pros and cons. Um, so from a quality of life and sort of psychosocial support perspective, it's really, uh, I think, important to realize that right now, in many hospitals, visitors and families are not allowed. Hospitals are making that decision to reduce the risk of coronavirus transmission, and also because they are so short on personal protective wear that they don't feel like they're able to give it to families. Because under normal conditions, if we have a patient in isolation, then we provide family members with gowns and gloves and protective wear when they go in and out of the room. And now all, you know, pretty much no facility feels like they can spare the equipment. So you know, right now when people are getting hospitalized, they, they are in isolation. It means the nurses come in less than they would under normal circumstances. And when they come in, they're gowned up, they're wearing face shields. Um, so I, I think under best usual circumstances, hospitalization is you know, 
feels hard for people. And I think it's likely to feel even harder right now because of this. And this is a necessity, of course. Hospitals also are modifying the way they provide care. They're, they're really finding they have to, again, to conserve the personal protective equipment and the manpower. So I think we should expect that there are going to be less, you know, frequent checks on people that, you know, our usual methods of trying to, you know, offer as needed medication or, or, you know, tapering up or down, those are going to be challenging because right now a lot of hospitals are thinking very hard about how often does a, you know, a health provider have to go in and out of that room, depending on how they've set up their infection control, does it require somebody to gown up to go in and then de-gown and decontaminate right when they come out? Um, and then, of course, since families can't visit, they are calling a lot, but the providers have limited bandwidth to call families and facilitate that conversation with patients. So, so yes, I mean, people who are very sick should consider hospitalization. I mean, that is certainly, you know, a place to be to get access to, you know, oxygen, which um, <clears throat> can be very helpful to people who are experiencing low oxygen. I mean, in theory, you can get oxygen as an outpatient. And I actually read with interest that in Italy, they were, you know, um, making that relatively available to uh, outpatients with coronavirus. I don't know how easily available it is right now in the United States. Uh, and then, um, you know, hospitals in general provide, you know, more uh, nursing care and supervision and, and, you know, people standing by in case of deterioration and the need, again, for that more extensive respiratory support. So, um, so yeah, there's definitely a role for hospitals here, but I think, you know, it's become a harder place to be than it used to be, which, you know, which is sad. So, uh, and then hospitals that go under surge conditions, um, you know, things might change even more. So you may have heard in Italy, because the providers are so, uh, because the demand is so much greater than what people can provide, they, um, you know, they have, they are not able to offer the ideal care to everybody is basically what it is. So um, uh, some of the hospitals in New York sound like they may have reached that point. Um, many hospitals, my understanding is that many hospitals are doing crisis planning. You know, first of all, trying to locate extra equipment, including extra ventilators, but that's hard. But also potentially making a plan to triage um, care if the demand is overwhelming to sort of decide how to prioritize who to take care of. Um, so this is gonna be difficult for everybody involved if it happens, but I want you to know that there do exist some carefully worked out ethical frameworks that were actually worked out over the past few years for use during public health emergencies. Um, so ideally hospitals won't be reinventing the wheel right now. <clears throat> and one of them that I heard about recently, which I think is quite, quite good, you know, considers um, a life cycle principle as part of prioritizing. So the goal is to give each individual equal opportunity to live through the various phases of life, childhood, early um, adolescence, early adulthood, you know, middle adulthood, later adulthood, retirement, and then maybe later life after that. Um, and what I like about that is, so that obviously does prioritize younger people, but it's not because older people are less valued or less socially useful or less productive. It is more because they have actually already had more opportunity to go through those various phases. Um, so um, I thought that was an interesting idea. Of course, we hope this will not, you know, 
come to this in most hospitals, and I certainly hope it's not enforced at a hospital near you, should you or a relative, you know, be considering hospitalization um, for coronavirus or anything else. Um, the other thing that the best practices emphasize is that the triage should be done by a trained group and it shouldn't be the, the treating doctor who has to apply those rules. And what we want most of all is we don't want providers winging it. That's, that's just going to be very difficult. That's going to take a difficult situation and make it even worse for everybody. So, um, so again, don't panic. Don't worry too much. And we, um, you know, my goal is to help people understand the um, the issues that some of these hospitals, you know, right now we have a few hospitals I think facing getting close to facing this, um, and this you know this might come up. It certainly has come up um, for Italy. Um, so again, you know, if you're when it comes to that decision of should we consider hospitalization, you know, knowing whether your hospital is uh, operating under normal circumstances or extra pressure or under full surge might be something useful to find out. And also you could see if you're able to find out just like how they're, you know, whether they've implemented a triage or how they, you know, would be doing that if they were under surge. So um, given that um, frail older adults in particular, you know, but also some other people may not be likely to do well um, with critical care, certainly, uh, whether or not with hospitalization kind of depends. Of course, as we go through this process, you know, the threshold for being hospitalized is going to get higher and higher. And so people in the hospital will be disproportionately sicker <laughs> and more, you know, uh, less likely to do well. Um, so ideally, we would have palliative care available to help people with their symptoms especially if uh, they have maybe, um, if they have an advanced directive or have already made their wishes known that they don't want intubation and ventilator support attempted um, and that they would prefer to be made comfortable. So most hospitals have palliative, many hospitals have palliative care services. Of course, if the hospital is busy with a lot of coronavirus cases, those providers are going to be um, you know, experiencing extra demand, but hopefully it will be available in most places. Uh, I read an interview with a geriatrician palliative care doctor at a New York hospital this week, and she did describe how they're already modifying what they do um, right now because of the demand and because of the manpower issues, right? They can't sit with patients and families the way they used to. Um, kind of carefully titrating up medications for symptoms is now difficult, again, because of the question of how often you can go in and see someone, what that means for the personal protective equipment, the time it takes. Um, so, uh, but um, all the providers that I have heard from, you know, have insisted that they're still committed to making sure that they are there to relieve symptoms and provide care and comfort to those who need it. Um, and then um, for me, I'm still kind of wondering how home hospice agencies will be able to step up to the demand. I've been asking around. I haven't you know, found out details yet, but, but I'm hoping that they will be able to help those, you know, including those people who maybe when they get sick from coronavirus opt to stay home, and if they're getting worse. I think it's really important that there be um, additional support for that person and for their, their family. Um, the Center for Advancement of Palliative Care does have a resource center for coronavirus. And, you know, the mainstays of symptom treatment are kind of the usual ones that come up in hospice. So opiates for shortness 
of breath. I have an article on better health while aging about medications in hospice. That's where I explain that opiate medications such as morphine um, not only relieve pain, but they relieve air hunger. And that, of course, might really be an issue for somebody who is very sick from coronavirus and has that pneumonia. Uh, and then they're recommending haloperidol, an antipsychotic for agitation. Um, I mean, in end-of-life situations as geriatricians, you know, that's not when we're going to object. We object more when it's chronic behavior control for dementia um, or uh, anti-anxiety sedative medications such as lorazepam, brand name Ativan. So um, you have heard me say this. I want to again say that advanced planning remains important. I see all this advice to people to wash their hands, keep their distance, but also sort of... Um, you know, having a directive um, uh, clarifying what you would want, who would make decisions. We are actually, I want to say also, if you have a directive, like who is your proxy and what are your backup proxies, right? We are seeing situations come up where the, you know, the proxy is the spouse. Uh, but that person, especially if you live with them, if one gets quite sick from coronavirus, the other one may well have been exposed and be sick as well. Um, so uh, having a few backups would be good. Um, you know, I read another interview with a palliative care doctor in Seattle who said that, you know, a lot of people who were coming in quite sick had no directive, you know, pre-existing directive regarding CPR or intubation. So I want to, again, um, make a push for prepare for your care, has easy advanced directives for almost all states, and you can also look into a PULSE directive. Uh, a PULSE does require the help of a health professional, advanced directives, depends on the state. Many of them can be done with two witnesses. Sometimes a notary is uh, required. And then, of course, planning for the possibility of illness should take into account the situation in your area. And so for most of us, that's going to be evolving week by week. Um, so I would encourage everyone to follow your local news, not social media. Be very careful about social media. There's a lot of misinformation apparently going around on social media, but find a reputable local news source to, you know, to keep up with what the conditions are in your city or county, what the conditions are with your local hospital and health providers. Testing and care options, I expect that those are going to be evolving over the next several weeks. Um, for uh, if you or someone you care about lives in a residential facility, um, you know, is there a way to find out what their policies and plans are if a resident seems to have coronavirus? Uh, so somebody asked me, you know, my parent lives in independent living, and if he fell sick from coronavirus, who would take care of him? And I said, that is, that is a great question. And, you know, I would start by asking the facility, right? Because that's probably something that they need to think about. Um, you know, are they expecting family to come? take care of people or to take them, you know, home or elsewhere? Do they have staff, you know, available? I mean, especially assisted living and independent living, they generally don't have a lot of nursing staff, right? That's not, that's not their job. Um, skilled nursing facilities are a little bit different. You know, what if they would rather, what if that person who's unwell would rather not go to the hospital, either because they have a longstanding pre-existing preference to not go to the hospital if they were very sick, um, which is the case for some, you know, some patients that I've had, especially if they're quite advanced in age. Uh, or maybe they, 
you know, um, had decided if they seem to have a bad pneumonia from coronavirus, they would, you know, they're hoping to not go to the hospital because they don't want to be in isolation, right? Um, so, you know, again, I think it's going to depend on what the local facility's rules are, and that might depend on what the local health authority, you know, at the county level is advising. Um, and then, you know, can they be cared for at home? Um, there are going to be pros and cons. I think, you know, the main ones are what is the risk of exposure to the caregivers, whether the, those are family caregivers uh, or paid caregivers. Um, you know, how feasible is it? Of course, it's going to make a huge difference if when we get the tests, uh, better tests so that we can find out, you know, within the household, are we sick too and or have we already been exposed, right? Because a certain amount, a certain number of us have been exposed and, and are immune. Um, so I think, you know, the consideration of care at home is going to be about um, what's the risk of exposure to caregivers and then, you know, how, how able like how feasible does it seem to manage symptoms of quite, you know, of pretty significant coronavirus, right? Of bad shortness of breath or really bad pneumonia. And to manage symptoms, I think that's, you know, partly a question of, um, I mean, I think it's a little bit similar to home hospice. Generally, people need to have medications available and they need to have uh, clinical guidance to help them know how to use the medications and what else to do and to support them during, you know, what is generally, like, pretty challenging, right? So, um, so for, you know, frail older adults in particular, I want to say again that, you know, I think we should, um, I think we should assume and hope that most older adults who catch this virus are not going to have a very severe course. I mean, again, even with that nursing home in the Seattle area that famously had all those residents get it and several of them die, you know, I forget the exact numbers, but, um, you know, I think more than half of them did, you know, survive, right? So it's, it's totally, you know, possible to have a mild course and get past it, even for people who are frailer and older. Um, so some of them are going to have a mild course <clears throat> and do okay, you know, be okay at home. And then it's, it's really going to be, you know, a logistics question of how do you provide um, care to them um, and, uh, you know, the kind of daily care while keeping yourself reasonably protected. I mean, some families might decide that they want to risk exposure. It's quite possible that people already in a household have been exposed. Uh, I looked it up, and as far as I could tell, it seemed like household contacts had a sort of 15% chance of being infected. I was surprised. I thought it would be higher. Um, so, but, you know, even if it was a 75% chance, you know, are you giving yourself a 25% chance of getting sick by continuing to provide closer care? We don't know. So that's, I think, something that every family will have to decide on their own kind of case by case and hopefully in consultation with their usual health providers. And then for older adults who start to show signs of more serious illness, um, the choices might be hard. I mean, the hospital will, you know, should mean more access to medications and support, but it will mean being mostly cut off from family contact. Um, so treatment of the symptoms at home to hope the person is going to get better and accept that they might not, you know, uh, ideally would be possible. And I think that's going to come down to whether the medications and clinical support are available either through home hospice or through other kind of telehealth um, setups. 
And then again, for people who reside in facilities or special communities, the choices may be to a certain extent dictated by what are the facility policies or the local health department policies. So in closing, um, I think this is a really difficult time for all of us. And many of us are worried about our own health and we're worried about people we love, right? Um, and I hear from so many people who are worried about older parents or other older relatives that they love. And um, today I didn't talk about, you know, the older parents who aren't following like all the recommended, you know, precautions and things like that. But, you know, that comes up too. So, um, so yeah, this is a difficult time. So I want to remind everybody that, you know, we, we can only do what we can do, right? And what we're going to be able to do is going to just depend on the circumstances that are generally out of our control about testing, about availability to, you know, care options and much more. So what we're able to do is likely to change week by week. So we just have to follow the situations and, you know, hope for the best. Um, I do think it's worthwhile to put a little time into planning. Um, and we shouldn't obsess over everything that could go wrong or, you know, getting unlucky and having a severe case of this. So let's, let's put our time into a little time into getting reasonably informed and planning, and then let's hope for the best. We can all try to be good neighbors, uh, good friends and family members to help others when we can, and also still to take care of ourselves, because that's really important too. So in summary, this public health emergency remains very serious and things will get worse before they get better. Um, so continue to practice your social distancing and the measures that are recommended um, by um, credible experts <laughs> um, to reduce your uh, risk of transmitting it and of catching coronavirus. If you haven't already done so, I do recommend advanced planning and considering, um, you know, what should be done if, um, if a person were to become very sick from coronavirus. Um, and it's okay if you're not sure, because sometimes just considering the question saying, I'm not sure still creates a foundation that when the time comes to make a call, it's easier. And then follow your local situation because the intensity of what is happening at the hospital in your area is likely to determine, uh, your options. So thank you. Um, oh, and then again, you know, connect with others, take care of yourself, focus on what you can do, appreciate today try to minimize unproductive worry. So thank you all for being part of the Better Health While Aging community. Take care, good luck, and I don't know if I'll do another one of these this week. Kind of depends on whether I feel like I have something useful to say or not, but I appreciate all of you, and I'm thinking of, of everybody. Take care. <laughs>